Welcome, Whiteman Warriors, to Practicing the Pillars podcast, where every airman is a leader. When you lead yourself first, others will line up to follow. I'm shopping Bill Petrie here with our wing resiliency coordinator, Tech Sergeant Kimberly Desaluce, and a very special guest, the 509th Operations Medical Readiness Squadron Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Stephanie Forsyth. Colonel Forsyth, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much, Chaplain Petrie. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so excited to hear your story because we know that it has been um, just a journey that needs to be told. So um, as we're listening in, what, where would you like to start? What, how do you want to open this up and unpack this? Well, I'm not sure exactly. There's uh, probably a, a lot to unpack, but we have time constraints, so we don't need the uh, marathon version. We just need the Cliff Notes version. Um, I think it would be good just to start a little bit uh, about uh, the beginning and kind of you know just putting it out there on the table so that people know what it is we're talking about. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to talk about today is uh, a previous suicide attempt that I had um, about a year and a half or so after I had joined the Air Force and kind of what was happening at that time and where that stemmed from and what, you know, I was able to learn and how I was able to grow and become a better and stronger person, you know, after that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, launching right into that. So year and a half into the air force, um, what were you doing? What, what was beginning to contribute to, to that, that event? Sure. So I was, um, you know, my first duty assignment and things were, you know, going fairly well on the outside uh, for, you know, what everybody else could see. Um, I had, I was performing well at work. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, some good group of friends. I was um, involved in the CGOC. I think I was the vice president at the time. Um, so involved and active and, uh, but I had, uh, it started with experiencing um, problems with sleep. Mm-hmm. So, um Interestingly enough, you know, I started to not be able to sleep very well, and then I was tired during the day. So initially, uh, I went to seek help for that. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I was given a medication Mm. um, to help me with sleeping. And one of the side effects or something that came of that was I ended up um, starting to have nightmares or dreams that were really flashbacks for me and so it was um, flashbacks of some sexual abuse that had occurred in my life previous to the air force and I had just I guess buried it and Mm -hmm. tried to forget about it and pretend it didn't happen and thought that I didn't have to deal with it and so when that happened it really kind of rocked my world um, if you will and then I got very you know, scared about, well, now I don't want to sleep, and but I still need sleep, and so I was really in kind of a, a 
a difficult situation, and that's when I you know, went to mental health to talk with them because clearly I knew that I was going to need some help in trying to figure out you know, what to do. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in your going to mental health, um, were you at that point um, where you were ready to just take your own life as a result of that, or was there more escalation so not initially. I think that I had always kind of struggled with uh, feeling like whether I fit in or belonged or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that uh, in my life. And while I had a good group of friends, the the sexual abuse that had occurred was from family members. And so I think that made me feel like an outsider if you will, my mm-hmm. family are like not able to trust the group that you should be able to trust the most, yeah. right? And so I think I was just, you know, struggling to figure out what I needed to do. I don't think I fully understood how much work I needed to do mm-hmm. to overcome what to over, overcome that abuse. And so while I went went to mental health, I think in my mind I was looking for a quick fix. Like, okay, I've been able to pretend this hasn't happened for, I don't know, you know, it, I mean, because at this point, the abuse happened in my adolescent years. And so at this point, I was 24, 25. So it was, you know, quite a, a significant amount of time, eight, 10 years. I, I don't really know right. exactly. Um, so I thought, well, I'd been able to go off to college and, you know, become a pharmacist and join the Air Force. So I had been able to, I thought, you know, have success and pretending it didn't happen. So why couldn't I just go back to that? Right. So that was really, I think, where, you know, when I first went to mental health, what I was thinking was, okay, so how can I get back to pretending like this never happened? But that's not exactly what I needed to do. I needed to really talk through it and work through it. And so... But in doing that, I think I was just so, like, scared and didn't know what to do that um, it wasn't a, a pervasive feeling of wanting to kill myself or not wanting to live. It was more of I was trying to get help, and it didn't seem to be helping mm. because I think I wasn't in the place that I needed to be yet, and um, I didn't know how to ask for more help. Right. And so then, because I had medications that they had prescribed to me, um, and I just was, you know, having a difficult time, I just decided to basically take the whole bottle of Ambien that I had been prescribed because I just wanted to not deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was more of like I wanted to escape rather, but I knew that what could happen Mm -hmm. as a pharmacist. I knew what could happen if I took the medication, but that still wasn't enough for me to not do it. And so that's when I really knew that, um, I needed, you know, some more significant, uh, you know, serious help, um, to, to deal with the kind of the demons that were, you know, coming Mm -hmm. up in my life. Um, real quick though, in that, you know, on that day when I decided to do that, I, it was a normal day. I don't recall anything specific about that day at work. I don't think I went to mental health that day. I don't know um, if I did or not, but there's nothing that stands out in my mind about that day. But I remember 
being in the bathroom and thinking like, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm ready to escape or be done with this. So I saw the bottle and pills. It's like, well, I could just take this bottle and pills and like whatever, something's going to change in this. And I, I struggle even now understanding why that was, that seemed like a viable Mm -hmm. option and, and why it was something that I actually chose to do. But after I chose to do it, I think that's when I realized like, oh, this is really a bad idea. Yeah. And I'm going to need some help. So I had already told my roommate downstairs. So I had, I was living with two of my best friends at the time and one of them lived upstairs with me and one of them lived downstairs. And so the one that lived downstairs is my best friend, Rachel. And so I had already told her goodnight and gone upstairs to go to bed. And I, so after I took the pills, I went downstairs and I told her like, Hey, um, come and check on me before you go to sleep. And she was like, well, all right. And she, she didn't ask, she didn't ask anything. Cause I think she was just surprised and shocked. Like what, like, it was odd. She knew it was odd, right? And was like, okay. And so I said goodnight, and I loved her, and, you know, went back upstairs. And so um, from what she said, uh, probably about an hour or so later, she came upstairs to check on me, but she didn't just, like, come to my door and was like, oh, okay, yep, she's in bed. Like, she's good. You know, she obviously felt like something, you know, it was really weird. And so she, you know, came in my room, turned on the light, and tried to wake me up and couldn't really wake me up. And then I had put the bottle, the empty bottle, on my nightstand and wrote exactly how many pills were in there and how many I had taken because I think I knew that if, you know, I was going to get help, they were going to need to know that information so that they could counteract it or, Mm. you know, save my life. Um, Now, why I didn't just say, hey, I just did this and I need help, I don't know. But I think it just, again, I was... I don't think I was in like my right mind, if if you will. Um, and so then, you know, she called nine one one and woke up my other roommate and called nine one one and uh, ambulance came and and all that. And then they stayed with me <clears throat> at the hospital. And I don't remember very much when I, you know, first waking up. You know, I remember waking up and having, you know, like a tube in my throat and being not feeling right physically. You know, I. And so she said um, that for several hours I would, like, wake up and go back to sleep. And every time I would wake up, I'd be, like, asking her what happened, you know, where I was and all that. And so she had to keep, like, retelling me, you know, well, this were in. And, of course, they had reached out to my first sergeant, you know, commander and all that. And so, you know, eventually somewhere along that time they um, came to check on me and after they cleared me from, you know, the medical side and that I was going to be okay physically, um, which was a relief. Um, and so I don't know if they pumped my stomach or you know, used the activated charcoal or whatever they did. Um, but I know it was, I didn't feel well and it wasn't pleasant. So <laughs> I do remember that. Um, so then after they cleared me, I uh, transitioned into an inpatient uh, mental health uh, facility, and I think I was there for about a week or two um, while they were trying to sort out basically what my diagnosis was or what, you know, the situation was because this, um, so, that, you know, they had to do their ass- assessment and they had, you know, I had one-on-one sessions and some group sessions and stuff, and um, I realized being there um, that there were a lot of people struggling with a lot of things and 
while my struggle, you know, was real and the things that happened to me were difficult, they, you know, in, in seeing what some of the other folks were dealing with, I felt like, you know, I, I can overcome this. You know, I can, I, I feel like I can, you know, this is something that is, that I could get through and that this is, we're on the path now to where I really, the help that I really need. Um, and so then um, they just transitioned me into the outpatient, uh, outpatient program, so partial hospitalization program. Um, I know we have similar programs, you know, in the area that folks attend. And so that was probably about four weeks. And so instead of going to work, I was going uh, to that. And that program was immensely helpful to mm-hmm. me. Um, it really helped me to really get down to the core of what was happening and what had happened to me and the implications for that and, you know, really having to unpack that and work through it. Yeah. And so. So would you mind um, sharing some of those things that you learned um, out of some of those sessions that you might have had that, what was it that they took you through? What was it that built in you those steps to deal with those past um, traumas traumas yeah. that you've had, you know, the sexual abuse, mm-hmm. the, uh, I can't imagine that, you know, even with the attempted suicide, you're still dealing with now the, obviously the past, but also the stigma of, of being in a military filled with people who, who know that, that something was wrong. What, what kind of steps did you, did you walk through? So, you know, in dealing, you know, and going through that outpatient program, you know, obviously they had, you know, mental health providers there, but I got set up with a psychiatrist that I actually saw for at least a year after that. And he was, he was amazing. He was so amazing. And, um, that was, I think, part of, the, to go back a little bit, I think that was part of my struggle with mental health. I didn't really fully, I think, connect or trust the provider that I was seeing. And so while I needed to be doing more work, I think I was holding back. And that's, you know, helped, not helped, but kind of led me to, you know, where I ended up. But um, being able to really connect with him and being willing to you know, and he made me work, like it wasn't, you know, and, and that's the thing that in my mind, um, one of the things that I realized that I didn't really understand prior was when you go to get help and you have significant things that you need to work through, it's work, it's called work for a reason, like you, it is a lot of work and the mental, mental health isn't going to fix you, mm-hmm. you're going to fix you yes. with their assistance and so that. I didn't realize. I thought mental health was going to fix me, mm-hmm. right? When I first started, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to mental health. They're going to fix me, and we're going to move on. Like, I mean, that's just Take kinda, a happy pill, and you'll right, be better. Right, I mean, that's what people think sometimes, you know? And so realizing then through that outpatient program and with my psychiatrist that, no, actually, I'm going to fix me, but they're going to help me find the ways to fix me. And so that was a big thing um, that I learned in in going through that. Did it take you some time to understand that? Like outside of mental health, but when you got into the outpatient program, did it still take you a couple of sessions to be like, for it to start clicking? Yes, yes, absolutely. I I don't think it really fully 
um, I don't know when it fully clicked if it was during that outpatient because it was only about four weeks. Um, you know, so that was still pretty recent after, uh, you know, my suicide attempt. Um, but in there, there were some group sessions and other individual sessions where we talked a lot about uh, coping skills and different mechanisms and, you know, they used other, you know, art therapy and other types of therapy that wasn't just, you know, counseling. Mm-hmm. And so finding other outlets and ways to um, process things and identify your emotions and things like that was a lot of what I learned in the outpatient. Um, so I don't know exactly when, but yes, it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like, oh, magically, you know, <laughs> first day in outpatient. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to fix myself. Like, you know, it wasn't quite like that. It took some time to realize that. But there were a couple things in doing that I realized, you know, um, you have a choice on how you're going to approach life, right? You have a choice on whether you're going to be happy or not. You have a choice on, you know, what your attitude will be. And it really does make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And so I had always been kind of an optimistic or, you know, happy person. But I certainly let other people or other things decide or, you know, influence my perspective or how I approached things. And so during that outpatient is, you know, one of the things that I still do from there is I know that no matter what the situation is, I have a choice on, I control my thoughts. I can, I control my behavior. I control, you know, I can control me. I can't control other people. So focusing on what I can control, which is me versus trying to control all these other things that I don't have control over was a big thing that I learned, um, in doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course that if you try to compartmentalize things, um, eventually they will come back. They will come up, probably not at a desirable time. And so it's really best to deal with something head on. Now, that time when people are ready to do that is different for everybody. Certainly, I'm not saying that, you know, right? because there's all different types of trauma and I'm not a mental health expert, but um, the psychological impacts of that are different for many people. I mean, you know, whether it be, you know, sexual abuse or war or you know a tragic you know loss or I mean there's you know Mm -hmm. probably hundreds of things that would put would go into that category and not everybody's ready to deal with it initially but I think knowing that at some point you're going to have to really deal with what you went through or or what happened um, if you know that then I think it it won't be as hopefully it won't be as devastating when it when that time comes right you know or won't be so shocking when that time comes if you will now in in that process of working through it and in looking for healing and and discovering those triggers and the hurts and the pain and, and having that all come back to life again were you did you end up reconnecting with your family at all to address it that way yes and that was you know a significant part of it so um one of the family members was my stepfather and so he basically raised me and so yes I I knew who my 
biological father was, and I had a relationship with him, but as long as I can remember, I had always lived with my mom and stepdad, so I don't recall a time living without him. So he was my dad to me, mm. right? I mean, um, so that was the one that I, you know, was most ashamed of and was very difficult because nobody um, in my immediate family knew mm -hmm. that they, my immediate family, did know about the p abuse prior to that, which was from uh, uncle, I don't know how he was, really, he, they were, once I told my immediate family about that, he wasn't allowed to come around anymore, and then, you know, so that, but that added another layer onto my mom and my stepdad knew about that abuse, and then my stepdad still chose to abuse me after that, and so, you know, that, I struggled with that, because, like, well, when you found out somebody else abused me, you did everything you could to protect me, yet here we are, and I don't know how to, so, you know, it was, that was especially difficult, but one of the things that I needed to do to get closure and be able to move on from that was, you know, basically confront him and and tell my mom mm. what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so it took us a long time to get to the point that I was ready to do that. And he, you know, really the psychiatrist that I had um, really helped me to prepare for that. And so, you know, a lot of it was just um, managing expectations and self-awareness. So because I wanted to... I wanted to have an expectation for how my mom was going to react, right? I mean, that was at the core of it. I was like, well, when she knows, she's going to leave him. And he's like, well, you need to, you cannot go into this having an expectation of what she is going to do. You can only go into it with an expectation of what you are going to do and how you are going to react and what you are going to say and do. Because you don't control any of these. And so that, you know, it goes back to that, what I learned about like, oh, okay, you know, I can only control me and well you can have some expectations of other people you can't have a an unrealistic expectation like the expectation is that she is going to listen right you know that's a good expectation to have is you that she's control. willing to listen right right um, the, the the outcomes mm -hmm. I just want to say um, how brave and bold and um how proud of you i am to be able to, to to step out and to say those things and to have that difficult conversation um i can't imagine how easy it is i mean and, and i'm sure there's people that are listening that may be in a similar scenario um what might you say to them um if 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 they're having to process something similar um what guided you through that? What gave you the strength to actually have that conversation? Hmm. So what I would say, um, you know, to others is that we, we all carry around emotional baggage, right, in our lives. That's, you know, something that I think is just human nature. We carry things with us and we continue to place things on ourselves, whether it's blame or self-doubt or just, you know, negative self-talk or wh whatever. Um, so you carry this baggage. And so I had a lot of shame and guilt and, you know, things that I was carrying around. And so 
what I learned is in order for me to let go of that stuff and put it down, um, this was the necessary path for me. And so you have to f- figure out what path is for you to be able to let go of that. But the important, an important lesson that I also learned is that letting go of that emotional baggage and some of that stuff isn't forgetting about it. it it's not pretending like it never happened. Mm-hmm. It's learning from it and finding a way to be better and stronger coming out of it. You know, and so if... Um, and so that was you know, the key for me and what, you know, I, I try, you know, I would like for other people to know is that it will, it will be hard, but you can get to the point that you can put that baggage down and no longer have to carry that around and let that drag you down for the rest of your life. Now, it doesn't take what happened away and it doesn't change what happened, mm-hmm. but it certainly changes your perspective and your and your opportunities for the future and you know how you're gonna be as a person mm-hmm. you think uh, hopefully that would be helpful absolutely so one of my questions that I have for you ma'am is um, with your experiences right you talked about having uh, we all have baggage we all come from different backgrounds and experiences it's very rare that we hear um, a, a person in your position right a, a commander who's gone through adversity which you know we know it all happens but we don't we don't get um to hear about it just you know for our enlisted side and stuff you don't get that as often uh would you say with your you know with everything that you've gone through you've been able to reach your airmen in a different uh, capacity or even share uh your story um be be an influence for your airmen so I think that going, you know, having the experiences that I've had do help me to display empathy and compassion um, because I had to learn to give myself some grace and understanding that, like, oh, you know, I am also human and not perfect, and it's okay to be human. And we it's okay to have struggles and to admit it now I mean I don't walk around just telling everybody you know all the time so you know I mean a lot of people don't know but it's um I have you know shared you know in the past at Peterson I participated in the storytellers and shared my story there but from that I also uh, shared my story at our one of our squadron like wingman days um and so with my team, my, you know, the flight that I had there. And so that was, you know, many years after, you know, 15 years after this event happened. Um, but just that alone, you know, I could see how impactful that was. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to come and do the podcast with you guys is to be able to share the story so that, um, people can see that no matter, really, no matter who you're, talking to or dealing with, everybody has a story. Everybody has, mm-hmm. you know, something that has, you know, happened to them. And if you really, truly have put in the work and figured out, you know, what works for you as a person as far as, you know, being self-aware and, you know, reflecting, you know, on you know, things that have happened or, you know, just kind of 
your outlets, you know, to to cope with stress and, and daily life and, and things like that. If you've done that, then I think you're more able to build that trust with your team and hopefully connect with them so that they see. I do think that my, that the the team the teams that I work that I have worked with in the Air Force and you know even here in the Med Group and the my squadron see the compassion that I have and you know my empathy and vulnerability too because I'm a, I'm pretty transparent you know and I'm an emotional person I don't hide when I am emotional about something um, and so I hope that that is an advantage that they see that as a strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it as a strength, but yes. you know, I hope that they see that as well. And that makes them more willing to, you know, do the same things, you know, be transparent and vulnerable and, you know, display compassion and empathy for each other. That's excellent. Um, you talked a lot about one of the things that you had to learn or, you know, at least implement was that like you have, the control over your behaviors, over your thoughts. And we talk so much about that when it comes to like the resiliency mm-hmm. world. I, anytime I teach, it's, uh, you know, we talk, the skills are uh, reframing your thoughts and balancing your thinking, looking at things as how they are, um, trying to see things from a different perspective or even a more positive perspective and practicing gratitude and mm-hmm. stuff. And it, so it sounds a lot like you do now, especially um, all of those things. Is there... Uh, any specific, um, any other things that you do, such as like uh, uh, any form of physical outlet whenever you get stressed or do you journal or anything, <laughs> uh, anything cool like that, you know, <laughs> listening to music, rocking out in your car? What else do you do to, to maintain a posture of resilience? Um, so that's a good question. I, I think I have, you know, a collection of things. I'm not a very... Um, creative uh, person or like artistic person so me either <laughs> I tried you know in I think the outpatient program that I went through you know journaling was like and I tried that and I just it didn't work for me at the time and I haven't tried it since but like I I don't like to write very much I like to talk so like yeah you know, like this whole I can't write fast enough uh, you ever just to, talk to yourself yeah yes I talk so I talk to myself uh, talk to my cat you know um but music I really love music uh is good I you know running I do I don't run as much as um you know I used to I've done a couple half marathons and stuff but you know running or walking um really you know being out you know in nature I don't like like running or walking on a treadmill or indoor, like I like to be outdoors. And so, you know, out there doing that now that I have a family, you know, spending time with them, my own family, my husband and daughter, um, spending time with them, you know, is a huge, uh, a huge stress relief. Uh, most of the time, sometimes <laughs> the, a toddler, you know, I wouldn't consider that as a stress relief. They don't miss those terrible twos yeah. and threes. <laughs> so yeah, a three-year-old isn't always, uh, it, sometimes that's a separate stressor, but, uh, you know, connecting with them and, you know, f- spending that quality family time uh, with them is important to me. But, um, we actually recently, um, Something that I would like to do more, and I did sometime, but I've never really done it consistently, is um, practicing gratitude. And so that's something that actually my family and I are doing. You know, at least once a day, we're saying out loud as, you know, a family, what are we grateful for? And so mm-hmm. I'm getting my daughter in the habit of trying to do that because I do really believe um, that that's really important. Um, 
it took me a long time to change my kind of my thinking and um, that self-talk because um, I've always been a very driven person with very high expectations. So, um, you know, perfection was, you know, basically my expectation for myself. And so being able to change that expectation a little bit and then also changing the self-talk that comes along with that. And, um, you know, even as recently as last year at our um, Global Strike Commander's course in preparation for coming here to take command, um, General Ray had incorporated uh, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book into uh, the curriculum there. And so it was really, I really uh, connected with, you know, her work and, and um, the material in that book and kind of reset like, oh, you know, I've lost track of some of these things in, you know, how we talk to ourselves and, you know, the value of gratitude and mm-hmm. self-awareness and reflection. And basically, until you have worked on yourself, you know, we are our own barriers to connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, if, if you don't love yourself and you don't care for yourself, so if you are saying something to yourself that you wouldn't say to a loved one, you know, being able to recognize when you do that and fix it, not fix it, change it, um, mm-hmm. you know, is something that is still not that easy, but I am much better at it now than I was before. Um, So you mentioned this, your roommate Mm -hmm. and and my mind keeps going back to this place where your roommate had just an inclination. She saved my life. I mean, uh, uh, just a, whatever it was, just a, a feeling that something wasn't right. Um, do you stay in touch with her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she was uh, my maid of honor uh, in my wedding. And, um, yeah, she – obviously, we're, we're not, <laughs> you know, close to as, – as, you know, geographically. But, um, yeah, she's about to have a baby, and so I'm trying to get back for her baby shower. Um, but, yeah, she, you know, I will forever be indebted to her because right. I am – fairly confident that she actually did save my life. Right. I mean, I'm grateful that I went and said something to her in a way that she recognized something wasn't right, but I'm much more grateful that she actually took action Yes. on that instead of just, you know, it's very easy to just be like, oh, well, that's weird, but you just forget about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, one of the takeaways, you know, for my story is right. the importance of, you know, having a good wingman, but really being a good wingman. And by that, I mean, taking action when you see or hear something that is abnormal right. because nobody else, I was very good at putting the face on. Mm-hmm. So nobody, and even my roommates, you know, they didn't know that I was dealing. I mean, they, they knew that I was having, you know, problems and seeing mental health, but they didn't fully know the scope of, you know, what really I was dealing with. Right. And so, you know, it's, there may only be one person that sees a glimpse of something that's not right. Right. And, you know, if you are that one person, it's vitally important to do something. And if you don't feel like you can do something, getting somebody else to help you do something, you know, calling somebody else, you know, or whatever, but don't just ignore it. You know, um, 
And so that's a good message. Mm-hmm. It really is. And, and I think of another, uh, it might be just somewhat related, but in the Air Force, I hear so many times as a chaplain that, that people don't want to engage with mental health because they think it's going to end their career. Mm-hmm. Yet you're, you're a commander. Mm-hmm. And um, you went through that path. Um, what would you speak to an airman that's, that's on the fence right now? Maybe they're you know, going through some things and they're just afraid to, to have it come back and bite them. So that's a great question. Um, what I would say to them is you are worth it. Your life is worth it. Go to get that help. Advocate for yourself. Be persistent in getting the help that you need. Even if you don't know what it is, just keep speaking up until you find the help that is going to be helpful for you. You know, because everyone's a little bit different. So whether it's going to a chaplain or mental health or wherever, but, you know, speak up because there are a lot of resources and a lot of help available. And it really comes down to allowing people to help you. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle is they want to believe that I am strong enough to handle this myself. I can do this alone. Mm -hmm. I don't need help. And if I need help, then that means I'm weak. No, it's the opposite of that. The ability to speak up and ask for help is the strongest thing that you can ever do in Mm -hmm. my mind. And so um, that would be is it takes way more courage to ask for help than to try to go it alone. Um, And so I would encourage folks to... If you're not comfortable with mental health, then talk to some, go somewhere else, find it somewhere else. But the reality is mental health, often going to mental health doesn't actually end careers. I think there are many more stories, um, even from the data that we have here, I think 98% of uh, the members in the last, I don't know how many years, Colonel Button could tell you, but... uh, uh, 98% of folks ended up being returned to duty. And so it doesn't mean that they end. But at the end of the day, if for some reason, whatever happens and the path that it takes for you means that you have to move on from the Air Force in one way or another, you are still worth it. You are worth it and your life is worth it. Your life as a human being is more important than the Air Force will ever be. And so I do, you know, I really do believe that. And when I talk to people, I'm like, listen, I care about you as a human being first. Secondarily, I care about you in the Air Force as well. And if we can keep them aligned together, great. But if some, at some point they have to, because our time in the Air Force for everybody comes to an end at some point, it's always going to be temporary. Nobody is going to serve forever in the Air Force, you know. And so it's like, okay, well, maybe that time is going to come sooner than you wanted or what you expected or, you know, and that. I'm sure will be difficult to deal with, but at least you're still alive. That's right. That's something that we talk about too is, you know, people are scared being PRP or mm-hmm. fly or, you know, just losing their career field in general, um, whatever uh, restrictions there might be if they go and see mental health or get on certain types of medications and stuff. But at the end of the day, 100% of the time, if you ask for help, you're going to receive help. And just 
getting to take that one foot forward and say, hey, I do need help, um, that could potentially save you. And like you said, like it's such a small amount, a small percentage. I actually think it was like 1% um, that that lose their AFSC. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, sometimes they don't even lose their career in the Air Force, but they just might have to move to another position. Right. Um, it, it's just... You're like you said. You're worth it. You're worth taking that, taking taking that one foot forward. Mm-hmm. So, I like that you said that. It's so good. So, thank you for for speaking of such a tender subject. And um, I, I I can't imagine um, how hard it's been to 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 walk through all of what you've had to walk through. Um, and I know. For me and other listeners, I, I'm I'm curious as to just how your relationship is like with your with your mom now, and um, I know she's dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, how what's that like? I mean, with managing expectations and all of those things, I'm I can imagine that you're still um, there's still things that you're resolving. Um, how are th- how are things with your with your mom? Yeah, so. You know, it's interesting. Um, like I said, it took a long time to get to the point that I, you know, was willing, basically. But I knew that I needed to tell her. Um, but I had talked with my dad first and told him that this is what was going to happen. And, you know, whether he was going to be there or not was up to him. But I was going to tell her. And if he wanted to be there, he could. But it was also important that I had that conversation with him first so that he understood where I was and the impact it had on me because he didn't realize that. Um, he was, he's been, re- he's remorseful and um, I think he has some work to do and he has not done. But um, in my discussion with him, it was basically if you are going to be there, then this is not an opportunity for you to say how. Like this, because prior it was like, well, he didn't fully blame me, but he was like, well, you know, you did this, you did this, you did this. It was all about what I did versus what he did. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that I said, this conversation isn't going to be about what I did. This conversation is about what you did to me. And so if you are going to be there, it's not going to turn into a, you know, you need to be willing to basically admit to what you did. And this isn't going to be, you know, an argument over who did what. Mm -hmm. And so um, that conversation, you know, happened. And my mom is still with my stepfather. And um, I've been able to, we, the two of them and me, have been able to kind of move past that because we had that conversation. Now, had I not did that work with a psychiatrist and managed those expectations, I could easily see how... I would not have a relationship with either of them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they did raise me. Mm-hmm. And a large part of who I am today is because of them and because of him. You know, he is prior military. The work ethic that I have is because of him. A lot of how I approach things in life is because of him. And so while this awful thing happened and I have forgiven him. Again, I don't forget. And so him and I are never going to have the relationship that we had before because we used to be fairly close, which is partly why what happened happened. Um, 
but that closeness was different for me than him. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But my mom and I have, we always kind of struggled a little bit. Um, our personalities are not very alike. And so we, that's always been a struggle. But, you know, she has, has and continues to be, you know, very supportive and, and always there for me. And so she is still there and she's, you know, coming to visit here pretty soon. But basically it just turns into oftentimes, you know, she comes to visit by herself. Um, you know, initially when I didn't want to go home, you know, she was basically willing to, you know, have him not there so that I could see her mm-hmm. and, you know, things like that. And then since then we've, you know, kind of evolved and, you know, it's okay and we can go home and be together as a family and it's, there's not a lot of animosity or anger or resentment left, uh, you know, mm-hmm. on my side anyway. And so um, the relationship, you know, is, is fairly good um, with them. I think it would be nice if, you know, we're a little bit closer, but I talk with her regularly, you know, and um, so she's great. Well, again, thank you for, for sharing this vulnerable story and um, for, for having the, the courage to, to be open as a commander, as a, as a leader, um, to, to share those, those things in your life that probably many people would never share. Um, it's just too secret. It's too personal. It's, uh, but um, I'm, I'm thankful for those things that you were able to share, and I think I've learned a lot just about... Um, those places that you went through and, and opportunities for you to learn. I think one thing that is, is amazing that you spoke to was the fact that um, to, to work through issues and problems for our airmen, it, it is work. And uh, I think that we all needed to hear that. I think we need to hear that, that um, things don't just get better just by themselves. It, it takes some mental work and those exercises sometimes can be harder than the physical exercises that we might do in PT. They they, they take some some real uh, you know s- some courage. Um, and you're going to want to quit along the way because it's not fun. Right. It's not pleasant at all. But at that's the when you know when it's working. Right. That's <laughs> but that's how you know yes. that that it's you're yeah on the right path. That's yeah. you're on the right path for sure. Absolutely because you know that's the big thing along the way I was determined like hey listen you know I don't want to be in the spot again whatever I need to do so that I don't I don't you know I don't want to ever choose taking my life as an option again and so whatever it is that I need to do to get to the place that and even now I mean you know there's I try to be very aware of what's happening in my life and, and stressors, you know, but it also gives me, if I can get through that, I, I'm pretty sure I can get through anything. So, you know, that, that helps because I always go back to that whenever things are, you know, there's never been anything that's as significant as that in my life and, or traumatic as that in my life. And so like, okay, well, if I was able to get through that, I can pretty much get through anything now, but I'm, I try to be self-aware so that if I'm struggling, you know, whether I'm feeling lonely or just, you know, it's like, okay, well, let me get back to making sure that I'm doing the things that I need to do. And if they're not working, I'm going to go get help again. 
and I'm going to, you know, do more work or whatever it is that I need to do because I don't want to be back in that place again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was very driven in doing that. And so even when the work was hard and believe me, it was hard. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that in order to, you know, to preserve my life going forward, it was necessary. And, and you were so, worth it. Yeah, and you're you worth, worth it. it. So you have to, you know, if you don't think that you're worth it, you know, that's the step, you know, you have to love yourself and you have to believe, not just say it, you have to believe that you are worth it, that your life is worth it. And so, you know, it, it can take a long time to get to that point. That's right. It's really good. Well, Kim, is there anything else you want to ask or is there any, is there any, so everybody knows the song, Lean On Me. Is there a reason why you uh, you chose Lean On You chose Lean On Me? Well, I just, um, I chose it because it really gets to, um, you know, that wingman, you know, thing uh, that, you know, that we talked about, the importance of having a wingman and having somebody that you can lean on and other people knowing that they have, um, they, they can lean on you. And so, you know, it really is significant for me because I wouldn't be here today if I didn't have that person that I could trust and that I leaned on and then I have done everything I I could going forward from there to be that person for somebody else uh if you know they need it and so um plus I just you know it's a, it's a good song a like who doesn't song. like that song, that song right I, like I, I mean who doesn't want to hum it or sing it when right. it, you know as soon as it comes on you just get yeah. instantly happy yeah it's like okay mm -hmm. like you know but it, it talks about you know we all have pain mm -hmm. we all have sorrow you know, there's going to be struggles, but there is always tomorrow if you choose that, right. you know, and so being present in your life and, you know, um, can help with that. One of my favorite sayings is you've made it this far and survived, you know, mm -hmm. and it, um, I mean, that's literally it. You've made it this far and you've survived. And it's just like, it's so true because like you said, we've got all this baggage and stuff from our own past and we're still here, you know, and that's, because we're, we're making those choices every day to, to keep trying to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you again so much for sharing your story. Um, as Chaplin said, I know it, it can be difficult, but your experiences uh, hopefully better help somebody else that might be going through it. So thank you again for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. It makes me so happy. Yeah.